Chapter Seven of Nothing But the Truth by Frederick Isham. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Seven, Varying Vicissitudes. A footman had brought the message, which Bob now took and opened mechanically. It was from the Commodore. For heaven's sake, it ran, return at once to New York. We'll explain. Bob eyed it gloomily. The Commodore must have been considerably rattled when he had sent that. "'Any answer, sir?' said the footman. Bob shook his head. What could he answer? He couldn't run away now. The Commodore ought to know that. Of all fool telegrams. "'A business message, I suppose?' purred the lady at his side. "'I trust it is nothing very important to call you away?' "'No, I shouldn't call it important,' said Bob. "'Quite unnecessary, I should call it.' He crumbled up the message and thrust it into his pocket. At that moment one of Mrs. Ralston's paid performers, a high-class monologuist, began to earn his fee. He was quite funny and soon had everyone laughing. Bob strove to forget his troubles and laughed too. Mrs. Dan couldn't very well talk to him now, and relieved from that lady's pertinent prattle, he gradually let that dull care-grip slip from his resistless fingers. Welcoming the mocking goddess of the cap and bells, he yielded to the infectious humour, and before long forgot the telegram and everything save that crop of near new stories. But when the dinner was finally over, he found himself again wrapped in deep gloom, wandering alone on the broad balcony. He didn't know just how he came to be out there all alone, whether he drifted away from people, or whether they drifted away from him. Anyhow, he wasn't burdened with anyone's company. He entertained a vague recollection that several people had turned their backs on him. So, if he was forced to lead a hermit's life, it wasn't his fault. Probably old Diogenes hadn't wanted to live in that tub. People had made him. They wouldn't stand him in a house. There wasn't room for him and anyone else in the biggest house ever built. So the only place where truth could find that real, cosy, homey feeling was alone in a tub. And things weren't any better today. Nice commentary on our boasted, advanced civilization. Bob felt as if he were the most alone man in the world. Why, he was so lonesome, he wasn't even acquainted with himself. This was only his double walking here. He knew now what that German poet was driving at in those Der Doppelganger verses. His double was alone. Where was he? The real he, the original ego. Hanged if he knew. He looked up at the moon, but it couldn't tell him. At the same time, in spite of that new impersonal relationship he had established toward himself, he felt he ought to be immensely relieved in one respect. There would be no cosy cornering for him that evening. He had the whole wide world to himself. He could be a wandering Jew as well as a doppelganger. Mrs. Dan and Mrs. Clarence were walking and talking together, but somehow he wasn't at all curious about them. His mental faculties seemed numbed, as if his brain were way off somewhere, between the earth and the moon, perhaps. Then he heard the purring of a car, which seemed way off, too. He saw Mrs. Dan and Mrs. Clarence get into the car, and heard Mrs. Dan murmur something about the village and the telegraph office, and the car slid downward. Bob watched its rear light receding this way and that, like a will-o'-the-wisp, or the lonesome firefly, until it disappeared on the winding road. A cool breeze touched him without cooling his brow. Bob threw away a cigar. 
What's the use of smoking when you don't taste the weed? He wondered what he should do now. Go to bed, or— It was too early for bed. He wouldn't go to bed at that hour if he kept to that even tenor of his way condition. He hadn't violated any condition so far. Those fellows who had inveigled him into this wild and woolly moving picture kind of an impossible freak performance would have to concede that. There could be no ground for complaint that he wasn't living up to the letter and spirit of his agreement, even at the sacrifice of his most sacred feelings. Yes, by yonder gracious lady of the glorious moon. He wondered where his gracious lady was now, and what she was doing. Of course the hammer-thrower was with her. "'Are you meditating on your loneliness, Mr. Bennett?' said a well-remembered voice. The tones were even and composed. They were also distantly cold. Bob wheeled. Stars of a starry night! It was she! She came right up and spoke to him, the pariah, the abhorred of many. His heart gave a thump, and he could feel its hammering as his glowing eyes met the beautiful icy ones. "'How did you get rid of him?' he breathed hoarsely. "'Him?' said Miss Gwendolen Gerald, in a tone whose stillness should have warned Bob. "'That sledgehammer man, that weight-putter, that Olympian village blacksmith, I mean, the fellow with the open, honest face?' "'I don't believe I understand,' observed the young lady, straight and proud as a wonderful princess in the moonlight. Bob gazed at her in rapture. Talk about the shoulders of that girl who had given him the cold shoulder at the dinner-table. Miss Gwendolen's shoulders were a thousand times superior. They would cause any sculptor to rave. Their plastic beauty was that of the purest marble in that pure light. And that pure, perfect face likewise bathed in the celestial flood of light. Until now, never had he quite realized what he had lost in losing her. "'But never mind about explaining,' went on the vision, apropos of Bob's Olympian village blacksmith remark. "'I didn't come to discuss generalities.' "'Of course not,' assented Bob eagerly. The music from the house now sounded suspiciously like a trot. Miss Gerald saw, though indistinctly, a face looking out of the door. It might have been the little dark thing peering around for Bob, for she was quite capable of doing that. Bob didn't notice her, if it were she. He had eyes for but one. He was worshipping in that distant, eager, hungry, lost soul kind of way. Miss Gerald's glance returned to Bob. "'Will you be so good as to take a turn or two about the garden with me?' she said in a calm, if hard and matter-of-fact tone. A number of people were now approaching from the other end of the broad, partially enclosed space, and Miss Gerald had observed them. "'Will I?' Bob's accents expressed more eloquently than words how he felt about complying with that request. Would a man dying of thirst drink a goblet of cool, sparkling spring water? Would a miser refuse gold, or a canine a bone? "'Will I?' repeated Bob ecstatically, and threw back his shoulders. Thus men go forth to conquer. He did not realize how unique he was at that moment, for he was quite swept away. The girl cast on him a quick, enigmatic glance, then led the way. Sometimes his eyes turned to the stars, and sometimes toward her, as they moved along. In the latter instance they were almost proprietary, as if he knew she ought to belong to him, though she never would. The stars seemed to say she was made for him the breeze to whisper it. Of course he hadn't really any right to act proprietary. 
It was taking a certain poetic license with the situation. Once Miss Gerald caught that proprietary look, and into the still depths of her own gaze sprang an expression of wonder, but it didn't linger. Her eyes became once more coldly, proudly assured. Bob didn't ask whither she was leading him, or what fate had in store for him. Sufficient unto the present moment was the happiness thereof. A fool's paradise is better than no paradise at all. He didn't stop now to consider that he might be playing with verity when he hugged to his breast an illusory joy. She didn't talk at first, but he didn't find anything to complain of in that. It was blissful enough just to swing along silently at her side. He didn't have to bother about the truth proposition when she didn't say anything. He could yield to a quiet, unadulterated joy in the stillness. If denied temporarily the music of her voice, he was, at least, privileged to visualize her as she walked along the narrow path with the freedom and grace of a young goddess, or one of Diana's lithe forest attendants. The vision at length stopped at the verge of a terrace where stood an Italian-looking little summer-house or shelter. No one was in it, and she entered. They wouldn't be disturbed here. She leaned on a marble balustrade, and for a moment looked down upon the shadowy treetops. The moonlight glinted a rounded white arm. Bob breathed deep. It was a spot for lovers. But there was still no love-light in Miss Gerald's eyes. They met the gaze of Bob, who hadn't yet come out of that paradoxical trance, with cold contemplation. "'Do you know what people are beginning to say about you, Mr. Bennett?' began the vision, with considerable decision in her tones. "'No,' said Bob. "'Some of them are wondering, well, if you are mentally quite all right.' "'Are they?' It was more the silvery sound of her voice than what people were saying that interested Bob. "'The judge and Mrs. Vanderpool have agreed that you aren't. People are a little divided in the matter.' "'Indeed,' observed Bob. Of course, if people were divided, that would make it more interesting for them. Give them something to talk about. The doctor agrees with the judge and Mrs. Vanderpool, but the bishop seems inclined to give you the benefit of the doubt, went on Miss Gerald, her silvery tones as tranquil and cold as moonlight on the still surface of an inland sea. He said something about inherited eccentricities, probably just beginning to crop out, or suggested it might be, well, a pose. "'Very nice of the bishop,' muttered Bob. "'Benefit of the doubt? Quite so. Fine old chap.' "'Is that all you have to say?' said Miss Gerald, a faint note of scorn in her voice now. As she spoke she leaned slightly toward him. The moonlight touched the golden hair. "'Maybe he felt he had to differ,' remarked Bob, intent on the golden hair. It wasn't golden out here, of course. And the stars beyond. He might not really differ at heart but he had to seem broad and charitable. Ecclesiastical obligation or habit, don't you see? I don't quite see, said the girl, though her bright eyes looked capable of seeing a great deal. No, murmured Bob. Some of that paradoxical happiness seemed to be fading from him. He couldn't hold it. It seemed as elusive as moonshine. If only she would stand there silently and let him continue to worship her like that devout lover in the song, in distant reverence. It wasn't surely quite consistent for a goddess to be so practical and matter-of-fact. "'There are others who agree with the doctor and the judge and Mrs. Vanderpool,' continued the girl. "'You mean about my having a screw loose?' "'Exactly,' 
crisply. "'And some of them have consulted me. "'And what did you say?' quickly. "'I'm afraid I couldn't enlighten them. "'I believe I suggested that sun theory, "'although it really wasn't blistering hot today, "'and you, with inimitable irony, "'look capable of standing a little sunshine. "'Yes, I feel as if I could stand a whole lot,' "'said Bob gloomily. "'Also, I said, unmindful of this last remark, there is sometimes a method in eccentricity or madness. Lord Stanfield agreed with me. He said he found you an interesting young man. Did he? Confound his impudence! That monocle man certainly did ruffle Bob. You forget he's an old friend of my aunt's. Severely. As I was saying, Lord Stanfield found you interesting. And we agreed there might be a method, studying him closely. But when we came to search for one, we couldn't find it. She didn't ask a question, so he didn't have to reply. "'Mr. Bennett, why did you answer me like that down in the village?' Bob hung his head. He felt worse than a boy detected stealing apples. "'Had to,' he muttered, desperately. "'Why?' There was no mercy in that still, pitiless voice. Bob took another long breath. "'Please don't ask me,' he pleaded after an ominous pause. "'That wasn't not telling the truth.' It was only temporizing. The violet eyes gleamed dangerously. "'I'm just a little bit curious,' said the girl, in the same annihilating tone. "'In the light of subsequent proceedings, you will understand. And is Mrs. Ralston's niece. Aunt doesn't quite realize things yet. The others have spared her feelings. I haven't, of course, gone to her. Aunt and I never talk over our guests,' proudly. That made Bob wince. He looked at her with quite helpless eyes. "'Maybe she will order me off the premises before long,' he said eagerly. "'I have already been considering the possibility of it, believe me,' earnestly. "'It would be the best way. Can't you see I'm dangerous, positively dangerous? I'm worse than a socialist, an anarchist. Why, a Russian nihilist couldn't make half the trouble in the world that I can. I'm a regular walking disturber. Disaster follows in my path.' bitterly. Some people look upon me as worse than the Black Plague. Now, if your aunt would only turn me out. You see, I can't go unless she does. Got to think of that even tenor of my way. But if she would only quietly intimate, or set the dog on me. The girl gazed at him more steadily. I wonder if the judge and the doctor and Mrs. Vanderpool aren't right after all, she observed slowly. Let me look in your eyes, Mr. Bennett. Bob did. Miss Gerald had heard that one could always tell crazy people by their eyes. She intended to sift this matter to the bottom, and therefore proceed with characteristic directness. Folk that were, well, off, she had been told, invariably showed that they were that, by a peculiar glitter. Miss Gerald gazed a few moments critically, steadily, and with unswerving intention. Bob withstood that look with mingled wretchedness and rapture. He began to forget that they were just the eyes of a would-be expert on a mental matter, and his own eyes, looking deeper and deeper in those wonderful violet depths, he stood so she got the benefit of the moonlight, began to gleam with that old, old gleam Miss Gerald could remember in the past. Bob had never talked love in those blissful days of yore, but he had looked it. "'I don't see any signs of insanity,' said the girl at length, with cold assurance. "'That gleam wasn't a glitter.' nothing crazy about it. 
She had seen it too often in other men's eyes, as well as in Bob's, not perhaps to such a marked degree in other men's eyes, but sufficiently so that she was fairly familiar with it. "'You look normal enough to me.' "'Thank you,' said Bob gratefully. "'And that's just why—' a slight frown on the smooth fine brow i don't understand of course a man not normal might have answered as you did me i'm not thinking of it as a personal matter you will understand oh i understand that returned bob i'm just a problem not a person she made him quite realize that she made it perfectly and unmistakably apparent that he was unto her as some example in trigonometry or geometry or algebra and she wanted to find the solution. He was an X, the unknown quantity. The expression on her patrician features was entirely scholastic and calculating. Bob now felt the ardour of his gaze becoming cold as moonlight. This wasn't a lover's bower. It was only a palestra, or an observatory. "'You haven't answered me yet,' she said. No diverting her from her purpose. She was certainly persistent. You insist I shall tell you why I didn't want to see you. She looked at him quickly. That isn't what I asked, Mr. Bennett. I asked you to explain that remark in the village. Same thing, he murmured. And it's rather hard to explain, but if I've got to? He looked at her. On her face was the look of proud, unyielding insistence. Of course, I've got to tell you the truth, said Bob, and his tone now was dead and dull. In the first place, Dad's busted, clean down and out, and, well, I thought I wouldn't see you any more. I fail to see the connection. Her tones were as metallic as a voice like hers could make them. It's like this, said Bob, ruffling his hair. Here was a fine romantic way to make an avowal. You see, I was in love with you, he observed, looking the other way and addressing one of the furthermost stars of the heaven and and when a fellow's in love and he can't uh, well you know ask the girl you understand very vaguely said miss gerald bob's explanation so far was one of those explanations that didn't explain if he had so heroically made up his mind not to see her he could have stayed away of course from the ralston house he couldn't explain how he was bound to accept the invitation to come, on account of being in honour bound to that confounded Commodore et al., to do so. There were bound to be loose ends to his explanation. Besides, those other awfully unpleasant things that had happened, he had to tell the truth, but he couldn't tell why he was telling the truth. That had been the understanding. Miss Gerald, at this point, began to display some of those alert and analytical qualities of mind that had made her father one of the great railroad men of his day. For an instant she had turned her head slightly at Bob's avowal. Who shall say why? It may be she had felt the blood rush swiftly to her face, but if so, a moment later she looked at him with that same icy calm. One hand had tightened on the cold balustrade, but Bob hadn't noticed that. She plied him now with a number of questions. She kept him on the gridiron, and while he wriggled and twisted, she stirred up the coals, displaying all the ability of an expert stoker. He was super-sensitive about seeing her, and yet as a free agent, she thought him that, he had seen her. From her point of view, his mental processes were hopelessly illogical, worse than that. Yet she knew he was possessed of a tolerable mentality, and good enough judgment, for one who had in his composition a slight touch of recklessness. 
I give it up, she said, at length wearily. Do you? Oh, thank you, exclaimed Bob gratefully. And if your aunt orders me from the place— But why can't you just go if you want to? I'm sure no one will detain you. Haughtily. Can't explain, only it's impossible. Like Prometheus bound to the rock for vultures to peck at, unless— How intelligible! And what a happy simile, under the circumstances! With far-reaching scorn. What if I should tell my aunt that her guest compared himself to— that's the idea, returned Bob enthusiastically. Tell her that. Then, by Jove, she would promise me, please. Of course, said the girl slowly. My diagnosis must be wrong. Or perhaps she meant that she had lost faith in that glitter theory. If you only could understand, burst from Bob explosively. It was nature calling out, protesting against such a weight of anguish. But Miss Gerald did not respond. A statue could not have appeared more unaffected and unsympathetic. She had half turned as if to go. Then she changed her mind and lingered. It annoyed her to feel she had been baffled, for she was a young woman who liked to drive right to the heart of things. Her father had been called a czar in his world, and she had inherited, with other of his traits, certain imperious qualities. So for a moment or two she stood thinking. An automobile from the village went by them, and proceeded to the house. It contained Mrs. Dan and Mrs. Clarence returning from the telegraph office, but Bob hardly saw it, or was aware who were its occupants. Miss Gerald absorbed him to the exclusion of all else, now. He had no mind for other storms that might be gathering. Suddenly the girl turned on him with abrupt swiftness. End of chapter 7